Matt, it's a real pleasure to have you on because I've run into you so many times or I've seen you at conferences, but I haven't really had the opportunity to connect with you. I'm going to go really far back in the histories of Matt Marcus and ask you, how did you even step into this industry? What was that start point to say, okay, the challenge course world is maybe where I want to be? My introduction to challenge courses, I think, was kind of traumatic. I had interviewed back in 1997, I think, at a wilderness therapy organization up in North Georgia. And the way they did the interviews was it was a 24-hour interview. You went, you had to stay 24 hours, get a real good feel for what the job was like, what living on site was like, what the kids you're working with was like. And my first day that I show up, the first thing we're going to be doing is making cutting through the woods to make it so we can make an ambulance road to the ropes course that they had on campus. Because two days before, someone had broken, shattered their leg on the ropes course. I didn't even know what a ropes course was. I was just there, okay, well, we'll cut down trees and clear this little road. And okay, I, I didn't know where the road was even leading other than to a place where a guy broke his leg. I, I don't think I'm interested in the ropes course. That sounds like a bad thing. I don't want to do that. It ended up being better. Uh, I worked at that wilderness therapy program for about two years. Toughest job I ever uh, loved, that's for sure. And there was a guy there. His name was Mike Latimer, and he ran the ropes course there and did it for decades. Um, you know, He's one of those people in our industry that does sort of this yeoman's work of just day after day, week after week, year after year running people through courses, doing great facilitation, but they're not famous. They're not well-known. They're just in their one little place, but he taught me sort of the basics. And so that's, that's really sort of how I got my start. Moved on from there. I met a girl at that program and she ended up going away to grad school at Georgia College and I followed her. And that's where I met Jim Wall, who had written a, a book, The Complete Ropes Course Manual, with some other famous people in the industry, Carl Rocky. Uh, I think was a was a co-writer on that and Don Rogers and Catherine Tate. So had a, a lot of sort of more exposure to the ropes course world in that college work. George Mason University had a a program where they were running ropes courses and did a, you know, they needed facilitators. So this is back in, in 2000. So I actually went up to a Kinko's and faxed in my resume. And by the time I got back home, the phone had uh, wrong, and they left a message and uh, said, yeah, come facilitate for us. I was like, great, okay, well, how often do you need me? And they were like, we have groups seven days a week. Massive program. It ended up being, I stayed there six years or so, and they were running like 20,000 people a year, mostly low course stuff, but pretty big. They had school groups come out and they had multiples of every event. So like four or five you know, walls and four or five whale watches. So it was a great program where you're doing it over and over and over again, five or six or seven days a week. And man, do you start to get really dialed in on your script and what to expect and sort of what you see groups doing and how what you say afterwards during that facilitative part, that questioning part, the so what part, it really makes, I think, a really big difference. And it was during that job that I was like, oh, now this, this is awesome. This is the important stuff here. Let me backtrack a little bit. When I was in college, undergrad, and I was graduating, my dad clipped out an article from the newspaper, the Washington Post, 
and mailed it to me. And every year, the Washington Post would do the same article. And it was about this year's graduating class of, of college graduates and the jobs that students were getting and the job market that the country was in. And this is in the mid-90s. I'm graduating. He sends me this article, and I'm reading the article. And this woman who's just graduating is very excited about her next job. She is going to be on the team that is going to redesign the cottage cheese tub for craft. And I thought, oh my God, one, I don't even like cottage cheese. I hate cottage cheese. And so reinventing the tub so that more people buy more cottage cheese, I cannot think of an any worse possible job. I think the article had the exact opposite effect. That, that's why I didn't do it. There was no magic in that kind of work. But seeing the way these kids, and they were mostly mostly fifth and sixth graders, but some middle school and some high school, and we had corporate group as well, the way they interacted so differently, and I think more importantly, the way the teachers would make comments about how they had not seen their student in that way before, and a little bit of a light bulb went off to the teachers. These kids are better than I thought. These kids are smarter than I thought. These kids are yeah, behavior-wise can be a handful, but if I just reroute it differently, it has a good outcome. Oh, I mean, and that would happen fairly regularly when you're doing it as often as you're doing it, five, six, seven days a week. So I love that. And then eventually I had been there enough years and I was now managing that program uh, as the assistant director of that program called Hemlock Overlook. And the other great part of that job was then I was like, ah, oh, the client isn't just now the teachers and the client isn't just now the kids going through the program. It's that staff that I'm working with and helping them see that magic and have, helping them make that magic happen. That, that was good stuff for me. I loved it. For the most part, if you go back far enough in our industry, most trainers were builders or constructors of the courses. They built them and they were like, I guess I have to show people how to use it. Now we've got to a point where there are a lot of trainers that have some great background in education. And, and I think that these skill sets are things that trainers may or may not have, but need to work on. And I think that's what can make sometimes those trainer credentialing or qualification conversations a little tougher because those are a little harder to define between, or can I teach someone how to tie a knot? Or can I teach people how to be accurate uh, attentive facilitators. And then also, how do I project that? How do I t help people learn? Harder things to try to narrow down, but really important. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of staff over the years, and there are certainly ones that are perfectly adequate. They're good. They are good facilitators. They are technically sound. They ask good questions. They listen well. They follow up. But again, good, fine. Wouldn't get rid of them. Love them, right? Solid workers. But then there's those others that are just out of this world spectacular. And I don't know what that secret sauce is exactly or how you train that or teach that or develop that other than just have it be shared and highlight and point out to other staff and go, see what just happened there? You see, did you see it? Did you notice it? Did you see how it affected the group? And if they start to just pick up on that, I tend to find that that helps. Another one of those training pieces I think would be helpful too is media training, which sounds odd. I'm not giving interviews, but the idea of giving short, clear directions to an activity that you're about to do is better when you know what you're going to say and you say it short and sweet and almost scripted. It also helps get rid of the ums and ahs that we all tend to focus on and make mistakes of, and it just slows people's listening down. I think it's more important now than ever 
in a sort of a TikTok world where people expect short and concise and you can't edit when you're live. That the period during the pandemic where we had to enter the virtual space, there were a lot of people in the industry who were like, this is the death of the industry, right? Uh, all the things I used to be able to do, I can't do. And then there were others who were like really jumped on board with the virtual. And I think that I truly credit the podcast for me in terms of improving my facilitation just by interviewing people, listening to people and picking up on what they're saying. And also the editing that I have to do on the back end. You talk about those ums and those ahs and the way that we speak. Those things have improved, I think, my ability to be able to facilitate, but also ask questions in a moment, reflect on activities because I'm having to ask questions of people. But those skill sets are, I think, a real challenge for others to be able to adopt, or at least they see them as a barrier. What's your recommendation of how someone might be able to improve their ability to interact in the media world? Because I know that you, with CDI, you work with the social media and the marketing for CDI. So what's some some things that other practitioners could do to try to improve or get better at this? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, obviously an acting class would help you in sort of a public speaking role and a public speaking class certainly couldn't hurt. And that media training probably would help. But the, but those are pretty, that's kind of advanced, I think. One of the ideas that makes sense to me is just the idea of getting out of the rut and recognizing your ruts. I've been in this industry now, long time, decades, uh, and I get in those ruts. There's like activities that I like, and I'm going to start with this one, and then we're going to go to that one, and then we're going to do this third one. And it works great for seven groups in a row, and it makes perfect sense, and it, it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And then that eighth group, wow, they throw me a zinger, and it doesn't work. And the activity was a terrible choice because they just weren't ready for it. And I have to look inward and go, mm, yeah, I, that, that was a mess up. And I told the rest of the group, the rest of my facilitators, this is how we're going to do it. You're going to do awesome and you're, it's going to be great. And then it sucked. And I got to go, sorry, guys, that was, that's on me. I own that one. Big mistake. We, we didn't do nearly as well as we thought we did on this one because I got stuck in a rut and I thought it would keep working and it didn't. And some of that is, you know, asking your group of fellow facilitators to call you on it and say, it's okay. I will not have my feelings hurt when you say, you're, you seem like you're in the rut. We've literally done the same thing. It's our eighth time in a row. Should we maybe mix it up? This group might not be the same. Is there something that you did or you used to do that was repetitive? You talk about doing the same things over and over again. If you were to look back at, you would say like, I shouldn't have done that or that was a mistake in the in those moments. Oh, that's a good one. I, you know, there was that classic methodology, I think, back in the day, whatever that means, of ordering a program in such a way. So you're going to do these warm-up activities and then you're going to do these sort of low-impact, low-ground activities and then you're going to build it up to a bigger, more difficult ground activities and then you can go up in the air. And that is that is the arc that shall work. Um, and I guess if you were, you know, Carl Rocky teaching back at a high school and you had an entire semester to cover and you had to think of a way to cover, you know, eight, 12 weeks of a class... Yeah, that made sense. You needed an arc. But that arc didn't translate well to a group that was here for six hours or four hours or maybe less. And getting out of that, I, I remember talking with people, fighting with them that like, we don't have to follow that arc. Like that's not written in gold. It was not brought down on uh, carved in stone. We can mix it up. Like there's going to be have to be groups that start up going down the zip line. Like that's first, first thing in the morning. 
boom, out of the gate. That's hard, but it might make sense. And we got to make it work for that. That was fun. Uh, and I think it was a good thing to teach people to not get stuck in the same training they've had from wherever they've been or the same experiences they've had. And there's certainly been people that have taught me, like I had a way of thinking that I, a good way of introducing something or the concept. And they said, no, 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 actually it's just cool a way of doing whatever. Even as simple as belay commands on, you know, like when you're belaying, like on belay, like what is that, what does that even mean? Belay on, wait, what? I thought we just said that word back and forth. And I thought, oh, that's so terrible. Like if it was 1970s and we were out in California trying to climb El Cap and we were two buddies but climbing together forever, that language makes perfect sense to be shortened and condensed. But I just met you and I'm a stranger and you, you, my life is in your hands. I don't, I don't even remember what the words are. This is so confusing. Can I just ask a question? Can I just say, is the belay on? And can't the belayer just say, as a matter of fact, it is in fact on. As you can see, I'm in the break position. You may now climb away. Like making a conversation. It's okay. You're allowed to do that. And in fact, it's more clear than less clear. I was at a summer camp that I worked at one year and their answer to questions, well, well, what if a zebra comes in right now? What if a zebra walks in right now? So new staff would say, well, I have a question. What if, so, you know, what if I belay slightly this way or that way? And well, I don't know. What if a zebra walks in right now? And it was all, it would always just throw people off because there's no, I don't know. What's the right answer if a zebra walks in right? I don't know what the right answer is. And there can't be a right answer. And training staff, I can't give you every possible scenario and outcome. But what I can give you is sort of like the big concept. And then you got to figure out if a zebra walks in and you know the concept of, well, I need to make people safe or I need to reroute the zebra, whatever it is, whatever action you're going to do, you can then do that. So even if you're up on a course and someone unclips, well, what's the course of action? Well, I don't know exactly, except that I have the concept of, I don't want them double unclipped. I want them clipped back in. Like that is a safer position to be in. So how do I get them there? Figure it out based on the bigger concept that's important, not this like very detailed prescriptive answer. And I acknowledge the sort of real to ideal, right? In an ideal world, I want to give people the concepts and and then they will know why they're doing something. And when they say, oh, I did it this way because so-and-so told me, they'll go, actually, I should have just, whatever way is right. You're right. And the, the why is it makes sense now. And that's what's important. Versus the real, which is we got limited time. I got to get a lot of people through this training. I'm going to be the best I can. And let's, let's do it this way for now. So it's all, we all see the same thing. We do it the same way. And then over time, we can start to fill in the rest of that and, and make it more broad and make more sense with context. I get that. I did see though, recently on a website for a summer camp, they had a, uh, you know, one of those pictures or uh, of activities. And one of them had the, the two carabiners opposite and opposed, but they, they were triple lockers. They were triple lock carabiners. And I thought, ah, oh, that's a, this is like such a great example of it that the, the guy just said from time immortal since the beginning of the summer camp, probably in the seventies, that's what you do. You opposite impose. You got, you have to, because there were no locks on gates. They were just open gates and it made sense then. And so that was just a, a fun thing to see. And maybe it just kept going over time and that's just the easier way to train it. And it's summer camp and they have this period of people here a short time. And there's lots of turnover. And again, that's, that's the real 
not necessarily the ideal. So let's just do it the same way and keep it simple. I get that too. For summer camp listeners out there, know that for the most part, when trainers come to your site, we might do a quick Google search on your website and look for photos of your challenge course. Because <laughs> that gives us good information about certain things like that. The number of times I've seen stuff like that and been like, okay, just so you know, I saw on your website, you were spending a lot of money on carabiners for your over-redundancy because of a tradition and history and maybe you haven't had training recently and that normally tells gives you a good indication of there's been a, a lot of in-house training let me ask you this this i'm going to go like pull back now we've looked at yourself i'm going to zoom out a little bit to the industry at large because you've served a lot for accct you've done a lot of work for accct even serving on the board what's your overview of maybe where the industry has gone in the last decade and maybe with that information where do you think it's going to end up going yeah, that's interesting. It's sort of a line chart I'm thinking, right? If we, whoop, 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 you know, what's the, the chart on that? I was having a conversation with someone recently about years ago, let's say four, five, seven, that sort of window where there was this really new growth of the commercial course, the pay for play, however you want to word that, which was different than courses that were at summer camps or were at colleges and universities and, and sort of that realm. And it changed. And there was a lot of growth and that was great for the industry. Uh, it was a little bit weird for the industry. I think we went through some rough waters, but in the end, I think it's been great, right? There's been growth. We are a bigger industry because of it. There's more people in it. Products have been developed and created that are safer and better and faster and wower and shinier and, and all that good stuff. And I like that. I had predicted years ago in my own head that that was not going to last forever. You were going to fill in all the geographic points if it made sense, right? So if you're at the beach and you have lots of tourists coming through, oh, this is going to be awesome. You're in Gatlinburg, holy cow, let's just build another zip line. There's literally an endless amount of people that will ride. And that it's, Gatlinburg might still be true, but that was not going to work everywhere. And they were going to build courses in places that didn't make sense and didn't have the traffic and, and eventually they would go under. But even when with COVID, not that many went under. I thought there would be more, but there weren't. They did great. Everybody did awesome. Best years of courses lines in terms of numbers and revenue and all that. So I think my predictions of what would have happened didn't come true. And I wonder what the future is. I don't know. I sort of feel like there's still room for that washing out. I feel like there's still room for consolidation both in the operator side and the ownership of courses side, as well as the builder and construct and construction company side, that there's some consolidation room there. So I think some of that will happen, that the industry will shrink in the number of owners and players and companies, but that industry-wide, it'll, it'll continue to stay even and grow more slowly than it did in the past. But I think growth is still there. The separation between the commercial and the educational, which I agree felt quite, there was a chasm almost between those at some point, that there's been a bridging of the gap in that I've seen a lot more awareness that facilitation skill from an educational perspective is a really, really helpful thing for a operator or a guide on a commercial course to have. That was a troublesome time period. I think there was a lot of budding of heads kind of with those two groups. But I, I agree. I think they have started to come together and see the benefit that each side brings, particularly the commercial side. When they're really new to the industry and they 
buy some land or put up a course and they're just hiring guides and it's sort of the trained monkey mentality. I'm going to train this person to just do the technical part and this is the technical part and boom, 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 get them in, gear them up, get them over, get them back in and maybe get a tip. Great. But I, I think once they start coming to the conference and they meet people where they really do see some of that side of the facilitation part and the education part, it really expands the idea of what a commercial course can be and the value that that brings with not a particularly extra amount of cost. So, I mean, how much does it cost to, to train a trainer, a guide to be a better facilitator? Some time, sure, but not an outrageous sum of money. So I think there's some benefit to that. Back in those, those 2012, 2013, that era, I would go on some of these commercial courses and I was from the educational side. So I was going to stand my ground and this, we were better than them. And, and I think I had some of that internalized feeling as well. And I went on some of these commercial courses and they were meh, some of them, but then some of them were really good. And I was like, oh my God, these, these guys are going to kill us. They're really good. Like it's the best of both worlds. But I didn't know if that was going to be the exception or the rule. And I tend to find now it's getting, you know, in the last year or two years that I've been out on some of these commercial courses, they're good. The guides are good. The training is mostly good. Obviously, the construction part industry-wide is, is pretty great. But that operational side is pretty good. I, I think post-COVID has been a little bit tough because finding staff has been hard. And because finding staff has been hard, they don't have as much experience. They're newer. Uh, and so I think we've seen that in sort of the injury data that that use the user error and guide error has been sort of the cause of some of these accidents and injuries. And I hope that over time now that we're past that COVID age and the economy is starting to balance itself out and employment sort of balancing itself out, we start to get back to that era where it's just really great staff. They have good experience, again, good training, and they're doing great work whether it's at a commercial place or a summer camp or a nonprofit or a university, it's all just great across the board. I'm going to end the question on something. I wrote a, an article for API Adventure Park Insider uh, titled Mapping Career Paths. This is one area that I think that our industry needs to improve in is our ability to be able to figure out a career pathway or an entry-level position, something, something that feels like there's progression and not seasonality to it. From your perspective as from sales and marketing, what do you think that the industry could do better or should do better in order to bring in a new generation workforce? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I tend to find that our industry requires sharp elbows where you got to elbow your way into positions and el elbow your way into more experience and elbow your way into serving on committees and if it's with the ACCT or whoever it's with. And that takes... A kind of personality that not everybody has. Not everybody is pushy like that, right? And that's, I get that. I was not always that way either. And so, as an industry, I feel like we got to see a lot more of that bigger picture. As business owners, that can be tough because you're like, I'm focused on my business and I got my crew to take care of and I got my payroll to deal with and insurance is going up and me and mine. And of course, that's what you should be focused on. But we also need that bigger, wider picture that says, what's the ecosystem that I fit in? What's industry-wise? And will I get good people if I can offer those kinds of things? And that's not always easy. I have talked to owners that have talked about how COVID changed their thinking and format in terms of staffing or how many groups they can run through a day and that it's been really beneficial. 
And so that helped poke them along. And, and I suspect we need to poke them still some other ways about the longevity of career wise. And there's certainly great general managers, of course, is who they're not the owners. They're just general managers that work for owners that are having some pretty solid careers and, and doing pretty well. But yeah, I think there just needs to be more asking and telling people that, yeah, you're welcome here. You're allowed. And I don't think that always, that always happened real well to just say to people, I'm glad you're here. This is a great industry to be in and you can do more and should do more in it. Come join this community or come join this group. And there's a lot of those. Those affinity groups the ACCT has are pretty great. The women's group is very strong and doing great work. And there's others that welcome more members to come in. You can start as a listener, and then you can work your way up to a to a talker, however you feel comfortable. Most of us didn't know this industry existed until we kind of fell into it or just came in. So what that demonstrates is maybe the overall marketing of the industry at large isn't as great as maybe we could have it in terms of promoting the good work that we do. And uh, yeah, just saying we're available and saying we're there, I think those are important and we get so isolated in our own stuff and our own bubble that we forget to reach out. So yeah, I encourage people who are listening to this just to mention to at least one or two other people that maybe are outside of this industry that we exist, (laughs) at least to say like, this is the good work that we do and maybe you'd be interested in it too, because I think that's how a lot of us got involved. It's just someone saying, hey, this is a thing. This is a slightly different version of education or this is a different way to interact with human beings. It's a fun place to work in. And the more we do that, the larger ultimately we'll be able to grow our our audience and our community. So thanks, Matt, for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you here. And uh, I hope we talk more at a conference. I'm going to corner you. Just chit chat more. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll the guy. <laughs>